Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 6 and 12. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. So teach us to count our days, that we may gain a wise heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon lesson is part of a familiar story, actually the longest story found in the Torah, Joseph and his brothers. When I was in middle school, I was cast as the brother Simeon in Andrew Lloyd Weber's the amazing Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And Andrew Lloyd Webber opened my heart and mind to this story and, well, through his creative vision. Perhaps that has been the case for you. Maybe it was a time in vacation Bible school. Uh, maybe it was simply in your Bible study. Whatever the case, we turn our attention this morning to Genesis 42 and be relieved that I will not be reading the entire chapter. Uh, We will be looking at verses 1 through 8 and then 17 through 28. I will be reading from the contemporary English version. I invite you now to listen by faith that you may receive God's word for you this morning. When Joseph's father Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you staring blankly at each other? I've just heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we can survive and not starve to death. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. However, Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin along with his brothers because he thought something bad might happen to him. Israel's sons came to buy grain with others who also came since the famine had spread to the land of Canaan. As for Joseph, he was the land's governor, and he was the one selling grain to all the land's people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him, their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized him, but acted like he didn't know them. He spoke to them with a harsh tone and said, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And so this exchange goes on back and forth because Joseph feared that they were there as spies, coming to look for areas of particular weakness in the land. And his brothers denied this, saying over and over again that they were there in good faith. Eventually, Joseph said to the youngest, said that the youngest brother needed to come in order for him to believe that they weren't spies. And so picking up at verse 17, 
He put them all in prison for three days, and on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I am a God-fearing man. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay in prison, and the rest of you go. Take grain back to those in your households who are hungry, but bring your youngest brother back to me, so that your words will prove true and you won't die. So they prepared to do this. The brothers said to each other, We are clearly guilty for what we did to our brother when we saw his life in danger and when he begged us for mercy, but we didn't listen. That's why we're in this danger now. Reuben responded to them, Didn't I tell you? Don't do anything wrong with that boy. But you wouldn't listen. So now this is payback for his death. They didn't know that Joseph was listening to them because they were using an interpreter. He stepped away from them and wept. When he returned, he spoke with them again. Then he took Simeon from them and tied him up in front of them. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put back each man's silver into his own sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. And it was done. They loaded their grain onto their donkeys, and they set out. When they stopped to spend the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his donkey, and he saw his silver at the top of his sack. He said to his brothers, My silver's been returned. It's right here in my sack. And their hearts stopped. May the Lord add insight and understanding to this holy word. It was 2003 when Michelle and I brought our two sons here to Ann Arbor for me to join the pastoral staff as a resident. The time was transformative. I've been privileged to come back more than once just to say thank you to this church. You set me on a trajectory of meaningful ministry with a strong foundation to know how to care for how to serve and lead others. And I will always be grateful, always be grateful for that first call. I even spent a few time in the choir, in the choir loft during my time here as well. It's comical to me now to think about one of the key reasons that I was drawn to this opportunity. Not long before my arrival, Reverend Michael Linval had left to accept a new call and the Reverend Bruce Ingalls was here as an interim pastor. And I thought from my recent uh, seminary graduation that it wouldn't be a bad idea for me to enter into a large congregation in a time of transition so that I would be well-equipped for whatever ministry brought my way. Well, suffice to say that God has said to me repeatedly, I'll show you. (laughs) After leaving Ann Arbor, I spent 12 and a half years in the Westminster Congregation in Greensboro, North Carolina, and during six of those years, we had two installed senior pastors and four interim pastors. Friends, I know where you are this morning. I know it well. I know it as an associate pastor. I know it as a human being. I can feel your pain. I can feel your unrest. But I can also feel, as I always have in this place, the Spirit of God, the love of God. You poured that into me, and it continues to be present here today. And I am convinced of that. 
As you find yourselves at a difficult crossroads in your shared life together, I am but one person. Who is here? One person that you made an investment in those years ago to offer a word of encouragement that God has plans yet for First Pres. Though the way forward may not be clear today, it will become so in time. The key is how you navigate that time individually and collectively as a church family. First Press has a rich history of vibrant ministry in the Ann Arbor community and well beyond. You are a beacon of light in our nation and especially so in the Presbyterian Church USA. That church family piece is what drew me to the Joseph story for today. Throughout scripture, we read of family struggles, broken-hearted widows, pain, violence, and famine. Family life in the Bible includes a mixture of love and pain, of, of love and forgiveness. The Bible depicts real families, rival siblings, tension among the generations, marriage and betrayal, scandalous affairs, teenage pregnancies, and the list goes on. The Bible talks about real families. There is pain, but there is also love and forgiveness and gratitude found in families. The Bible shows us that family life can be complicated and hurtful, and I believe that such illustrations are relevant in a broader sense that is of the, of the family when we think about the church family. I think we can take wisdom from these illustrations as we think about what it is to be a church family. After all, the church is comprised of the likes of us who come from families some who bring our families, others who create family within the family of faith. And oh yes, we bring our baggage that comes from families. Some of us carry more of that around with us than others. This morning's passage picks up after that many-colored coat, after the jealousy that has undermined the brothers' relationship, after Joseph was thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers, after his brothers lie to their father by telling him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal, this comes after the tears of a parent who lost a child 20 years after. Now Joseph is in a different position in Egypt, he currently he correctly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, so he was put in a position of power. And Egypt is living off of its reserves. They're the only place with food because of Joseph's correct interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. The surrounding natures are starving, and Joseph's brothers show up from Canaan. He recognizes them, but they don't know who he is. Much has changed in 20 years. Joseph is now an Egyptian. He's got the robe of power. Joseph is even, even wearing Pharaoh's signet ring. Power, yes, Joseph has, but pain also. Twenty years of pain under that powerful robe he's wearing. Is he going to retaliate? Relieve himself of all the pain that he has inside of himself? Or is Joseph going to choose another way, 
Joseph does something rather remarkable. He doesn't let the pain of his past dictate his future. He chooses a path that transforms the future for everyone involved. Richard Rohr says this about pain. If we don't learn to transform our pain, we will surely transmit it. If we don't learn to transform our pain, we will surely transmit it. It's amazing how one person's actions in a family system, the family of God, can create that much healing. I recently learned about a woman named Liz Humphrey. Liz grew up in Alabama. Her mother in the community was known as the Queen Bee. The Queen Bee because she was the chief heroin distributor in the community. When Liz was five, her father got arrested and was sent to prison. So her mother gathered up Liz and her five siblings and disseminated them through the family. They never saw their mother again. Liz found herself in what could be called a rough house. The night before her first day of kindergarten, her grandmother set her down and said, Liz, I need you to know that when the teacher hands out all of that paperwork that I need to sign, I need you to ask your teacher to put a red X by all the places where I am to sign because I won't be reading all that stuff. The next morning, Liz got herself up. She got herself dressed and she walked to school by herself. She found her classroom by herself. There were no first day of school pictures posted by doting and loving parents. There was no big brother or big sister showing her the way. Liz found her way to that little wooden desk and she plopped down and she was rehearsing in her mind what her grandmother had told her the night before. She'd been doing all the way to school. So when her teacher got to her and said, Liz Humphrey, Liz just looked up. Her teacher looked down and said, Liz, I am so glad that I get to be your teacher this year. Liz didn't know what else to say, so she said, My name is Liz Humphrey. My grandmother says all the papers that you give this morning that you need to put a red X by wherever she's supposed to sign because she's not going to sign any of it. She's not going to read any of it. Her teacher could see her pain. Her teacher could see her emptiness. Her, her teacher could see how scared she was. And her teacher did something absolutely remarkable. She knelt down and she looked into Liz's eyes. And she says, I know something that you don't know. You are going to be the smartest and brightest student that I will ever teach. Liz didn't know what to say. No one had ever said anything like that to her in her short life. Sometime later, her family went to church, and the pastor that day preached on the longest story in the Torah. It's about this guy named Joseph. It's about how his brothers abandoned him and how Joseph knows the particular pain and emptiness of being separated from his family. And Liz said, for the first time in my life, I heard someone tell me my own story. 
She said, I was absolutely captivated by what my teacher said, and I was absolutely captivated that Joseph chose at the end of everything he had been through, after everything I have been through, Joseph chose to be a force for good in the world and in his own family. She said, I could decide to be a force for good myself, even as a young person. Liz ended up going to college, and during the first week, she went to an information fair, and she found herself at a table for an association of of students who mentor elementary school kids. Liz signed up to mentor kindergartners. She mentored the whole time she was in college. In fact, she never stopped mentoring. She ended up graduating from college and then getting a law degree from the University of Alabama Law School. By day, Liz makes a living as a litigator, but by life, she's known as a child advocate in her community. In fact, Liz is now the vice chair of the board of the law school at Alabama. She clerked for several state Supreme Court justices. Liz thought that there was no way that she would ever come to love and trust someone enough to become married. You ask Liz now how long she's been married, and she'll say, longer than I can remember. She says, we have three of the most beautiful children that you've ever seen. Friends, the question that was before Joseph, that was before Liz Humphrey, that is before us, what will you do with your pain? Will you work to transform it, or will you transmit it? Will you get even, or will you choose another way? You have a choice. You can live your whole life in response to that pain. But God wants for you a better way. This difficult crossroads where you find yourselves is scary. There are questions that can be readily answered, and there are many more that cannot be answered. There is a myriad of emotions, sorrow, confusion, relief, anger, and everything in between. In the midst of it all, you can be a force for good in this church family. You can pray for your six ordained clergy who are ready to provide guidance and leadership and support, especially Melissa Ann and Jay. One of the things I've heard said about the two of them during my time here is that they are the glue that is holding the church together. I heard the same thing about myself in Greensboro during those challenging years. But I want to say this. The truth of the matter is that you in the pews are the glue that holds this church together. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. You are the glue that holds this church together. All your pastors are indeed here for you to provide for your spiritual nurture and formation to be a friend and a support along the journey, but you are the glue. This is not the first season of challenge that this congregation has seen. I experienced a a small fraction of it during my time here, and longtime members can tell stories 
God has shown faithfulness to First Presbyterian Ann Arbor over and over and over again, and God will show faithfulness in this season of transition as well. You can pray for your session and its committees as it endeavors to continue to provide for meaningful, excellent worship, mission, education, and fellowship. Pray for your board of deacons and Stephen ministers who are committed to caring for this flock. Pray for your staff who work faithfully, often behind the scenes, to ensure that ministry continues to happen in and through this church family. And pray for the Administrative Commission from the Presbytery of Detroit, who is comprised of volunteers from across the region who genuinely desire to help you reach to the bright future that God has planned for you next. How else can you be a force for good, you may be wondering. Live God's love. Your current stewardship theme Live God's love. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, live God's love. Support First Pres with your faithful giving that this congregation will not miss a beat as you continue to thrive in living out the call to be a light in this community and well beyond. Today is Commitment Sunday, as you know, and there's no better time to demonstrate your being a force for good in this church. It pained me as a pastor in a congregation to hear through the grapevine that there were people in the pews who were just going to wait and see before making a financial commitment. Friends, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is the absolute worst time to Allow your faith not to lead and to sit back and wait and see. I live with hope each and every day. I hope for better, more peaceful days in our troubled world. I hope for greater understanding among one another. I hope for more intentional listening so that we are talking with each other and not at one another. I hope for forgiveness and for reconciliation. Frankly, I can't begin to imagine living this life without hope. It's directly related to our faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Recently, I've added you good people to my list of hopes, to my prayer life. I hope for a clear path forward while giving thanks for your past. I hope it will not define your future. I hope you'll treasure and champion your diversity. Because, friends, that is one of the strongest aspects of this congregation. You taught me that it is okay to share a church and not be lockstep ideologically, theologically, socioeconomically, politically. You taught me that, and I firmly believe it, and I've been led to other congregations. But I also want to say that it is times like this when that strength becomes a challenge because, in fact, we don't see situations the same way. But what we do share in common is Christ Jesus. That is why we're here, 
That is why you're here. That is why this church has existed throughout its history. In her latest book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, Krista Tippett writes this about hope. In a century of staggering open questions, hope becomes a calling for those of us who can hold it for the sake of the world. Hope is distinct from optimism or idealism. It has nothing to do with wishing. It references reality at every turn and reveres truth. It lives open-eyed and wholehearted with the darkness that is woven into the light of life and sometimes seems to overcome it. Hope, like every virtue, is a choice that becomes a practice, that becomes spiritual muscle memory. It's a renewable resource for moving through life as it is, not as we wish it to be. Every time we step into the pulpit, preachers like me are charged with the responsibility of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But I want to say today that that is not the only charge that is going on here. You people, in the pews, in the balcony, in the choir loft, you are charged as well. You are charged to take the message that you hear, to apply it, to seek ways to embody it, to put skin on it and to take it into action. So with hope in our hearts, pushing fear aside with mercy on our minds and in our hands, and the assurance of God's Spirit carrying us forward, let us live into hope. For hope does not disappoint us. As the Apostle Paul writes, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. May it be so. All thanks be to God. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.